And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So, long-time listeners are going to know about my love of all things weird conspiracy and the government. And this episode's going to have it all, because we're going to talk about the precursor to one of the most obfuscated organizations in American history, and that's the CIA. But we're going we're to talk about its precursor, the OSS, which operated during World War II. And there's no shortage of wild characters, of spycraft, gadgets, gizmos, and hopefully there might even be a few gear-based technologies. Uh, so let me get, to, I want to make sure I get everything right here. So it's Dr. John, is it Lisley? Is it Lissell? Lyle. Lyle, okay. Yeah, I get every combination, so it's fine. But yeah, Lyle. Are you sure you're pronouncing it correctly? Because I'm looking at it, and it's L-I-S-L-E. You sure you got the pronunciation correct? Yes, yes. The S is silent, yeah. Okay. But you don't even, you don't have to worry about the doctor. Just John, you know, I'm not big on formalities. You're salt of the earth kind of guy. You're just one of one of us. Yeah, well, you know, my parents were both teachers, and so I feel like I'm a teacher like that. I mean, I'm doing something similar, but it is weird. I'll say my parent, my dad has always been Mr. Lyle because he taught for you know decades yeah, yeah, and yeah. so whenever someone calls me Mr. Lyle like a student I think oh my gosh am I like my, you know, <laughs> I'm there. my dad now which You're is not dead. a bad thing but yeah you know, I'm just I'm getting a little older I guess <laughs> ah, it's okay and I will tell you for you know for for you and for the audience at home I grew up in Illinois right next to a town called Lyle so I didn't know that oh, was a pronunciation. Neat. okay I just thought it was funny because it looks like Lisley and yes. I mean that might be how it used to be pronounced I don't know maybe when you guys came over who knows? But it but it is Lyle. Uh, yeah. So you know, I was trying to look up interviews on you to do a little bit of research. I got to get my research into. You're not the only researcher mm-hmm. in this conversation, John. <laughs> yeah, that's and good. It's, it's funny because you're not really anywhere. You're kind of like a fresh face uh, yes. in in the world. Um, but I, as I, so as, as I was looking everything up, there is a guy named uh, Jason Lyle who oh, shows yes. up who shows up everywhere. I don't know if there's any relation, but he does teach biblical astronomy and how science confirms, you know, creationism. You teach science and history at the University of Texas. As a matter of fact, I happen to know you're grading tests about the science <laughs> and, and religion from Newton exactly into right. the modern age. So, uh, you know, do you have a similar approach to Jason Lyle at the University of Texas? Because, I mean, it is Texas. Yeah, I, I don't think so. I'm, no relation to him that I know of. You know, okay. I've I've come across him before just when the name Lyle comes up. So I've seen him online before, but I I, I don't know him. I don't think he's related to me in any way. And yeah, I, I've seen him in connection to like Young Earth creationist stuff. I, yeah. I think that's what he does. And that's that's definitely not me. So I think we have some some pretty big differences between us. OK. All right. So, so it's easy to get you confused by name. But as far as philosophy goes, night and day. 
Yes. Okay. All, right. All right. Fair enough. Uh, you know, and it's funny, uh, you know, we were talking about um, my show, Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies, and I promised you that I would sneak in an early promo. I just did an episode on the evolution of technology, which I, I probably should have brought you in as a, as a guest as a guest host, because that's kind of what you do at the University of Texas, right? That, yeah, that's some of the stuff I do. What I'm, what I'm you know, working on right now, I'm writing... Uh, papers and books on really technology within the intelligence community in the U.S. So the OSS is the precursor to the CIA. So this Office of Strategic Services, you know, I write about the research and development branch within the OSS, and they were responsible for creating all the kind of spy gear and gadgets and documents and disguises that you would typically associate with undercover agents. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, right now I'm kind of working on carrying that forward into the CIA with what's called the technical services staff. This is the branch of the CIA that was responsible for, among other, other things, conducting the MKUltra kind of mind control program. But they also developed kind of gadgets, kind of like the OSS was doing during World War II. I mean, it's pretty exciting stuff. And, you know, uh, right now, I'm sure you know this, but in popular culture, prequels are really popular. You know, uh, I'm watching Andor, which is a prequel to Rogue One, which in and of mm -hmm. itself is a prequel to uh, Star Wars A New Hope. Rings mm -hmm. of Power is a prequel to Lord of the Rings, House of the Dragons, uh, Game of Thrones prequel. These are pretty popular. Uh, and you teed me up great here, John, without any provocation, is that longtime listeners will know I did a great episode on the MKUltra and the CIA mind control experiments uh, featuring Sidney Gottlieb. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, this interview we're going to do is kind of a, a prequel to that, because, as you mentioned, you put together a book about that precursor, precursor organization called the OSS. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was a precursor to the CIA called the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, and your book called The Dirty Tricks Department, which is a great name, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but that was an organization that existed between 1942 and 1945. Pivotal years. These are war years. Uh, mm -hmm. And we're going to get into why that context is very important. And the two central figures are Wild Bill Donovan and, and Stanley uh, Lovell. Is it Lovell? Lovell? Uh, Lovell. Yeah, Lovell. Lovell. Okay. <laughs> Pronunciation's not my thing, John. I, I don't know if, uh, if you caught on to that. Now, you did a dissertation. Uh, you know, you're a doctor. You don't like, as you mentioned, you don't like to be called doctor, um, but <laughs> you're salt of the earth. But your dissertation, dissertation was about the CIA and science during the Cold War. So did that kind of, was that the genesis for this book, even though it's kind of a separate time period? But did you think of that? during your research to kind of come up with your stuff for this book? Yeah, that, you kind of hit the nail on the head. I was That's doing research do. for my, <laughs> yeah, I was doing research for my dissertation, which is on, it's on a group of scientists within the, within the State Department called the Science Attaches. This is a program. Oh, that's a cool name. Oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> the 1950s. These are scientists who would be sent out by the State Department and attached to different American embassies abroad. And so their, the purpose was to help inform the ambassadors there on scientific issues, if anything came up, stuff like that. But I also found connections to the intelligence community or agencies like the CIA wanted these scientists to basically kind of find out what kind of research is being done abroad. Maybe can you pick the brains of some of these foreign scientists and see what they're up to? Yeah. And so through those scientists and their connections to the intelligence agencies, I kind of got interested in that general topic, and I kept coming across the names of people like Stanley Lovell or Sidney Gottlieb. And so yeah. that, that's kind of what first got me you know, connected to not just the history of science, which is my kind of first interest, but science and intelligence you know, in their connection. So that's, that's what turned me on to Stanley Lovell and really this 
R&D branch within the OSS that developed all this stuff. I mean, it's really cool, especially people who love, you know, James Bond or anything. I mean, this is where all that stuff was inspired. Uh, but, you know, there's also there's so many different central shadowy figures, you know, for those who love the X-Files. Uh, you know, the, the, there's lots of cigarette smoking men like Vannevar mm-hmm. Bush is a great is a great you know, side character. I think there's another guy who appears in this and in the Sid and uh, the Sydney Gottlieb. I think it's George White. Is that his George name? White? Yeah, he is. Right. He's the kind of oddest craziest does the <laughs> yeah, yeah, weirdest yeah. things yeah he, he he's a very strange eccentric individual <laughs> <laughs> yeah and hopefully we'll get into him because there are all these you know what's cool about it just from a narrative standpoint you know i'm the, i'm known as the master of film and television uh, on some of my other shows so i love narrative and i like stories and mm-hmm. these are just full of interesting characters weird situations i mean almost I mean, some of the some of the plots that they have, which we'll get into, were I mean, these are something straight out of like a Three's Company episode. I mean, really, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that must have been you must have just been scratching your head as a doctor, thinking to yourself, like I could have thought up better plots than the Office of Strategic Services at points. Yeah, well, there, you know, truth may be stranger than fiction in some cases like yeah. this. <laughs> you know, one of the reasons I was interested in writing this book was because I kept hearing independently a bunch of these stories. Yeah. One of the things that goes on within this R&D branch is like bat bombs, strapping incendiary devices to bats <laughs> so that they blow up and will catch houses on fire. This is crazy. Yeah. So I had heard of that story. Yeah. And then there are other stories like creating pancake mix that can explode or, you know, uh, painting foxes with radioactive glowing paint to scare the Japanese. I had heard of these independently, but it didn't really hit me that all of them were connected in this figure of Stanley Lovell, who ran this one branch and is kind of responsible for directing all these research programs. So when I found out that, oh, the thing that connects all these stories is Stanley Lovell, that's when I realized this is one coherent story. And I've got to tell that it was just too good at that point not to focus on. I mean, it's 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 great. And what's cool about it is even, you know, as an author, it is broken up by time periods. So you it's easy to write books about it. Right. I mean, like this is a it's the war years, really, of mm-hmm. American intelligence and the context that everyone was working under is very different. But then you get into the MK Ultra, and you know, in my other episode, I was talking about how if you're listening to it and you as a historian know this. History needs to have context. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. Just a bunch of crazy people running around. But when you have the context of World War II, uh, you know, we're fighting the Nazis. This is the you know, this is a big deal. Every this is this is a different time, John. You know, this is a time when every American wanted and supported the war. They stopped using, you know, they had rubber drives. They stopped collected oil. They stopped using things. They said, hey, you know what? Maybe we for the good of the nation will stop doing these things and help the war effort. Now you can't mm-hmm. even get people to stop buying SUVs and driving and using gasoline without everyone crying, oh, my freedom, my freedom. It's a different time, John. Yeah, it, it's a different time. Like you said, I mean, part, what the historian tries to do or should do is really focus on context. Mm-hmm. This is one yeah. of the main things I try to bring out by kind of contrasting Stanley Lovell with this head of MK Ultra that you mentioned, Sidney Gottlieb. Mm-hmm. In a lot of cases, they're doing somewhat similar things. Stanley Lovell during World War II, what I write about, he had performed truth drug experiments or hired this guy George White to perform truth drug experiments. He had invented these deadly weapons or helped to invent them. He had, you know, forged documents and produced these camouflage disguises. Sidney Gottlieb had done the exact same stuff for the CIA. Mm -hmm. Both of them have worked on 
uh, assassination plots of foreign leaders. So, you know, they're doing something so similar. And, you know, I think what you're drawing out with this idea of context is what really kind of shapes our image of who they are. Yeah. They're doing something so similar. But why are they kind of viewed in a different light in wartime, in World War II? You know, one of the phrases, kind of a typical phrase that might summarize this is desperate times call for desperate measures. Right. You might want to throw stuff against the wall to see what sticks because you're trying to survive here. You're, you know, you're yeah. you, this is like the biggest war in all of history. Yeah. With Sidney Gottlieb, your context is the Cold War, I guess, but this is kind of relative peacetime. And so the context is a little bit different, which means we probably look on what he's doing at the time differently than we would during wartime. Yeah, well, it's funny when you say throw anything against the wall and see if it sticks. Uh, you weren't probably referring to napalm, but that does come up. <laughs> that stuff, you know, that was it, a great it, transition. Yeah, right. I mean, but it's it's that is napalm comes out of this whole you know this, this whole world in these desperate times and and finishing uh, you know trying to end this war effort with anything possible. But let's you know I want to go. Uh, speaking of napalm, that would have been a great nickname for one of the characters, which we've only kind of touched on, who's Wild Bill Donovan. Uh, mm -hmm. This dude was insane. So I want you to tell this. Two, there's two stories I want to start off with. I think you start the book with one of them. Um, but uh, the story about how uh, when Donovan, you know, he is a World War One vet, mm -hmm. but World War Two starts and he is just itching to get back into the fight. I mean, this is a wild, you know, he'll fit in with the Rough Riders with, you know, mm -hmm. with, with with Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, but talk yeah. about how he goes back to <laughs> Normandy. You gets a gash in his neck, almost bleeds out, confronts people. There's talks about toxic pills. Uh, you got to tell the story because I'm not doing it justice. Yeah. So right after D-Day, I mean, the day, literally the day after D-Day, uh, Donovan is on a ship heading to the front lines. Uh, he, he, like you said, he had been in World War I. He had been in the trenches, literally got shot in the leg with a machine gun. Um, he had won the Medal of Honor in World War I. So he was a war hero. And that's where he kind of felt most comfortable. He just loved war. And not everyone's like this, but Donovan just happened to be that kind of guy who really likes the uh, excitement, I guess, that war gives him, the camaraderie that yeah. it brings to people. Well, and, and John, I think, and I don't want to misspeak here, now, this may be an, an apocryphal story, but when he got shot in the leg by the machine gun, I think he was heard yelling, is that all you got? Is that all you got? Right. Um, I, that, that doesn't spring to the top of my mind. It could be, but I don't know. No, he wasn't that crazy, but may, uh, maybe he was, maybe I've just, uh, this is how rumors start, John. This is how, you know, this, this is going to end up in your next book and all of a sudden you're discredited. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Um, you know, well, uh, before I talk about D-Day real quick, there is one quote about Donovan that I wanted to use for this book really badly. It's such a good quote. It, it talks about him. He's the kind of guy who would, you know, go and, you know, I'd dance on the roof of this hotel and then fight some Germans and do all this stuff. And I thought that is such a great quote. And so I tried to look up, where's this from? Yeah. So I looked up, okay, I found it in this book, but that book cites this book, which cites another book, which yeah. cites another book. And eventually going down the rabbit hole, I realized the quote isn't even about Donovan himself. It just got kind of corrupted over time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thought, oh, well, the one, the great quote I wanted to use, I couldn't. So yeah, historians really have to dive deep into where all this stuff comes from. Yeah, you have to, <laughs> but it shows the research that you do. And now that you've, you've kind of rooted out my story. But Donovan is the kind of guy who would take a machine gun blast to the leg and, and kind of ask, you know, give me some, you know, give me some more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, as we were saying during during World War Two and D-Day, mm -hmm. he he was basically going to the front lines. He wanted to see what it was about. He wanted to see especially um, what the conditions were kind of between the Germans and kind of the front lines. 
And so he hops on a ship and he gets dropped off on the beaches in Normandy. He's carrying with him, you know, a suicide pill and he, they're, planes that are getting shot out overhead there's bullets that are clanging against the hood of the craft that he was just <laughs> yeah. on yeah. and he you know turns to the friend beside him and he says you know this would he basically says something like this would be a good way to die if we're gonna die this this is how it should be <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and he tells his friend i want to be buried in arlington national cemetery so when we do die that's where you need to bury me yeah. um but then they they go to where the front lines are they see these kind of a German patrol. Well, no, no, hold on, hold on. You're missing the best part of the story here. So they, they pop out of the, uh, the helicopter or wherever they jump down. And I think Donovan under the weight of his buddy slips and falls and like gashes <laughs> yeah. his neck and it's like sprung a leak, you know, and he's like not even worried about it at all. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of intriguing details, but yeah, that, that that's is a good one. one. That's definitely, yeah, one. they jump off the, they jump off the, basically the hood of this duck craft that they were on. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, his, his buddy's helmet gashes Donovan right in the throat, right next to the jugular. It didn't quite nick it. So he's okay. Yeah, right. But then he gets up and he doesn't even say anything afterwards. He just says basically, okay, let's, let's continue. Let's keep, yeah. Let's go. <laughs> let's get moving. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. I mean, that's where we are. That's how the story starts, John. That's how the story starts. Yeah. It, it, it gets really crazy. He's a, he's a crazy individual but yeah they go they eventually encounter kind of this german patrol who is kind of shooting at them with these guns they duck down behind a shrub donovan kind of turns to the guy who's with him and says you know if if we're gonna die you know i i want you to you know i'll 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 shoot first and so the guy's thinking the guy's thinking oh so he's gonna he's gonna provide cover for me he's gonna shoot at the germans and we're gonna run away yeah what donovan means is no i'm gonna shoot you and kill you that way you don't have to shoot your commanding officer me and then i'll kill myself right um courteous to the end courteous to the end this guy yeah yeah they're able to get out of it but yeah that kind of gives a a snapshot of the character of who wild bill donovan is but he is the leader of the OSS during World War II, which is, uh, you know, part of that OSS is this R&D branch that I'm mostly writing about. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, he's wild. I mean, there's even talks about, you know, the talk about their suicide pills get involved. Uh, but there's other really quickly, there's this other great story about Donovan where he uh, basically, they've created this uh, flashless silent uh, gun, a, a 22 caliber, which is, which is pivotal to the story because it's the concept of that gun which gets Stanley Lovell inducted mm-hmm. into this whole world. Uh, it's his yes. answer to a thought experiment that Vannevar Bush poses to him. Uh, and, and so he says, this would be the best weapon to have if you're on an island tra- and you have to you know, ju- um, uh, get into a, a building. And then they end up mm-hmm. actually creating this thing. So to prove that mm-hmm. they've done it, he pops into FDR's office and just blasts <laughs> it off and, and like scares the crap out of the, the sitting president. Uh, I mean, yes. how does this, I mean, this is, in, the thing, Think that this would have happened at any point in our history is bananas. Yeah, I think uh, security was a little bit more lax back then, and it did not hurt one bit that Donovan wore his Medal of Honor lapel pin wherever he went, <laughs> kind of showing people, yeah. you know, you can, yeah. you know, the, the joke about Donovan is that everyone else would like line their lapels with all these badges that they had and pins and everything. He took all of that off except for the most important one, the Medal of Honor, which nobody else basically had. And so that gave him a lot of respect. So he could do, you know, a lot of stuff that other people couldn't. But yeah, the story you're talking about, there's this silent flashless 22 automatic pistol. He goes into Roosevelt's office. Roosevelt is sitting, dictating something to a secretary. Donovan's purpose in doing this is that he wants to impress Roosevelt because if you want funding, well, it doesn't hurt to have the president on your side. And so he drops a bag of sand in the corner of the room. He unloads this pistol. And again, it's a silenced pistol. And 
Roosevelt kind of smells some burnt gunpowder and turns around and he sees Donovan standing there with an empty kind of gun in his hand. Grinning maniacally. Blown away. <laughs> yeah. Whoa, oh my gosh. So yeah. then Donovan starts selling it. Donovan gives him the gun. He wraps it up and hands it to Roosevelt, who, you know, he kept that one. So, yeah, it's some crazy stories. <laughs> I mean, this guy's nuts. This is the guy who's leading this whole branch. Um, so there's a couple of, there's nothing, there's no shortage of great stories in here. But, you know, and you talk about in 1940 that Donovan's daughter was involved in a fatal car crash. Now, you say that his hair went gray overnight. I did some research on this because there was an episode of Twin Peaks, uh, which is an episode a TV show when I was a kid. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's uh, wildly popular uh, in the early 90s. And this is a crazy weird show. But in one of the characters, his head goes completely white overnight. So this has always mm. stuck with me, this idea. But I'm not sure if this is medically possible. I don't want well, to question I, you. I don't want to question you here, but uh, well, I, I'm going to question offer you. Offer a clar- clarification. Okay. I don't say his hair went. I say these people reported that his hair uh, went okay. white overnight. So Fair the enough. people who knew him. So it distances me <laughs> a, 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 just a smudge from that. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Well, so now you mentioned, you know, uh, so context is important. So we're going to get into like how this how this group comes about. So you know, it's World War II. You know, patriotism is running wild like Hulkamania. You got to win this war. Like this is what we have to do. And so 1941, I think from Bill Donovan is kind of making the case that they need an intelligence agency. Mm -hmm. And so he gets appointed the coordinator of information, which doesn't sound like a Mm -hmm. particularly high ranking title, but it is kind of is. He collects intelligence. And I love this part. Supplemental activities, which include propaganda, espionage, sabotage and disinformation. And he sets up shop just north of the Lincoln Memorial with Roosevelt's son as a part of the group. I mean, that's a pretty cool beginning. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned the supplemental activities. Yeah. These are all the kinds of euphemisms that come within the intelligence community. Supplemental activities, yeah. extraordinary rendition, enhanced <laughs> interrogation. It's kind of just par for the course of what to expect, I think. Yeah. So do you have to like, I imagine, because you've got it in your appendix, your book is fascinating because you have all the, you basically have all of the secret names for, um, for, for plots and for words, and you kind of break down what they were. That mm-hmm. in and of itself must have taken forever because in some ways to understand all of these classified documents, you have to decipher the lingo because, as you said, th- these words are meant to be purposely obtuse. It's, it is kind of a chicken and an egg problem. Yeah, you, know, right. you see the word and then you think, OK, I know that must be something secret, but what does it refer to? Then later you might see a description of some project, but not associated with that particular word. So it's, it, it is kind of hard to figure out which, what is what. Yeah. Fortunately, there are several people associated with the OSS and in particular, this R and D branch that I write about one of them of whom wrote kind of an internal history of the branch that was classified has since been declassified, but through that internal history, he describes a lot of these projects and lists their code names. So mm-hmm. that made it really easy when I found that document. <laughs> it's like the Rosetta Stone. I mean, that's helpful. It was the Rosetta Stone. Yeah, exactly. That's super, that's super helpful. Well, so this, you know, what's great about this is right as the, you know, right as this uh, organization starts, you know, I think you write three months after operation, there were Nazi papers uh, reporting all sorts of stories about Donovan that weren't true. So they were mm-hmm. already doing the disinformation that he was tasked with doing. And he must have been excited because it was all about him. You know, basically, he was excited. <laughs> he was excited because one of the things with the before the OSS became the OSS, like yeah. you mentioned, it was the COI, the coordinator of information. And that kind of morphed into the OSS mm-hmm. uh, in, in a little while. But one of the things that this German newspaper was saying, it was trying to, you know, scare people about the, the United States. And they have this organization organization that can know anything and they're going to send spies. 
and it's talking about Donovan saying he has the ear of the president and he has as <laughs> much funds as he wants yeah. and he can rely on any amount of personnel. He can hire anyone he wants. Donovan can't do any of that. Like at the, at the beginning of the COI, he doesn't have that much money. It's not like he can do much. He hasn't even sent spies abroad, but he, you know, <laughs> he didn't have kind office of, space. He didn't even have a place to yeah, work. Yeah. Yeah, he's the, yeah. Well, one, yeah. One thing I write with the, the original office space for this organization, it's in this, uh, kind of abandoned building yeah. that used to be the building of the national institutes of health where they had still like caged animals that were getting ready for euthanasia that were in there. And yeah. they were they were just kind of working all around this stuff. It was hectic. It was crazy. So, yeah, there's some weird origins of the organization itself that would go on to do a lot of weird things. Yeah, it was. Cra I mean, it's a perfect way to start. I mean, I will tell you that as an animal lover, reading some of these stories, uh, it was I mean, the bat bombs aside, <laughs> just, the, you know, mm -hmm. even them walking into the Institute of Health. It was just like, oh, my God, this is a different. I, I was thinking to myself, it's a different time. And then I was like, is it, though? Is it though? Um, I feel like some of the stuff still goes on. Uh, but, you know, the uh, so they kind of didn't get a lot of respect in the early days, which is kind of funny. Mm -hmm. And there's this great story uh, where I'm, I'm a big sports fan. And so, mm -hmm. you know, uh, basketball is my, is my first love. And there's no shortage of trash talkers in the history of basketball. And one of the most prolific was Larry Bird, who would tell you what he was going to do to you and then proceed to do it, which there's nothing yeah, more it, embarrassing than that. Yeah, it's 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 arrogant, but then they actually pull it off and it's like, oh, my You're gosh, like, like you can't come back at them because he actually did it. Yeah, it's like, I mean, it's I'm not a big fan of that, um, that braggadocious athlete. But when when you when you do something like that, it's just you've taken it to the level where you're like, oh, my God, how can you not respect that? And, you know, Bill Donovan kind of pulls off a Larry Bird move early on because uh, there's this uh, Admiral Schmale, which sounds like something out of Caddyshack, by the way. Uh, Admiral Schmale uh, calls them a Tinker Toy outfit, insulting them. You know, they're basically spies spying on spies. Mm -hmm. And he and he tells him, he says, you know, I could probably steal your files and blow up your ammunition depot by midnight. Uh, and Schmael laughs and then he proceeds mm -hmm. to do it. Like, how B.A. Yeah. is that? I mean, I love this yeah. story. And right off the bat, Bill's like, I I'm taking this. I'm taking this team to the championship. Yeah, he, he really didn't take offense if, if someone came at his organization or came at his personnel in particular. Yeah. Um, you know, the the common uh, kind of insult against the OSS was that it stood for oh so social mm -hmm. because a lot of the people that it hired were from these Ivy League schools and a lot of people thought that they joined the OSS so they wouldn't be drafted. So one of the jokes about the OSS is that it handed out cellophane commissions because it was transparent that people were joining this to, so they wouldn't get sent abroad and it kept the draft off, you know, like cellophane. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, that was one of the jokes. <laughs> hey, it holds up. That's not bad. <laughs> it yeah. Holds up. yeah, but in this story, yeah, Donovan, this, this guy insults him at this dinner party or his organization. And he goes and he makes a phone call real quick saying, okay, guys, I need you all to, you know, you're going to go go into this guy's safe, steal his documents, then plant some dummy dynamite at this ammunition depot, bring them back to me. Yeah. So they do that. He gets the documents. And at the end of the dinner, Donovan walks up to him and hands him the contents of his own safe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is, that is a baller move, man. That is, that is <laughs> so great. Uh, but they, you know, the, the training here was so cool because, you know, right from the beginning, they're kind of learning all the tricks of the trades. Uh, they're learning spycraft and you know you their tests were intense because they were it wasn't like these you know like nowadays where I feel like when people graduate certain programs they're not really set to do the thing right I mean even when mm -hmm. I graduated school I don't know that I was ready to enter the world right but here mm -hmm. 
your final like your final test was to steal classified documents from a real government organization and not get caught. And if you were arrested, you failed. I mean, these are real stakes. And the story you have of Robert Hawthorne, who, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, I don't know if you can tell that in brief, but the way he just I mean, owns this this whole process is just incredible. Yeah, this is one of my favorite stories. It, it comes from a, a, a book, a memoir of Roger Hall. He, Roger Hall was an OSS agent. Robert Hawthorne is kind of the alias he uses when he's going on this last, Got it. Uh, you know, going on this last test for the OSS. Sure. But in order to kind of graduate from spy school or secret agent school, you know, whatever you might call it. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah you, you have to steal some classified documents from like a defense plant somewhere in the United States. Roger Hall goes to one defense plant. And uh, he uses his alias and he forges some letters of recommendation and he gets a tour of the plant. And the person who gives him the tour happens to be the daughter of the vice president of this plant. And she's kind of smitten with him because he lies to her and says, I'm this war hero who did (laughs) all this stuff, you know, in order to get this job. So she sets up a lunch for him and the vice president the next day. The vice president loves him because, you know, he was interested in Army-Navy football and Roger Hall knew about Army-Navy football. They start chatting it up. He eventually gets this job and they go into the lunchroom and the vice president, unbeknownst to Hall, says, we've got a, we've got, you know, a military man from over there who's come to tell us, you know, about what his experience is like fighting in war. And then he calls Roger Hall up to give this speech. (laughs) Roger Hall lied. He didn't know any of this stuff. So he, he starts limping up to the podium because he said he was injured in war, which he hadn't been, but he kind of starts limping up there and he gives this rousing speech about, you need to buy war bonds. You need to write letters to the men over in Europe because, you know, I've seen, People come away from mail call empty-handed, crying because they're sad. And he gets a standing ovation. He limps off the stage, and uh, he passes his test. And he <laughs> right. And <laughs> never shows up to work. I love Never that. shows up again. That was it. The amazing part of that story. I mean, talk about these guys. I mean, just scoring on everyone. He, like five seconds in, they took him on a tour of the plant, and that's all he needed. Like, all he needed yeah, was yeah. the tour. And he, he accomplishes that five minutes in. And two days later is done with the test because he is just scoring on them left and right. I mean, this this is I mean, it really is. If you love sports, these are the biggest trash talkers and also the most (laughs) skilled people in the world at what they do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Roger Hall, uh, a little bit before this test, he had kind of failed to do something. Hmm. And so he was getting a little grief. And the reason he goes back (laughs) for this interview is because he wanted to make sure nobody's ever going to question how good he is again, because he's going to get everything he can. Right. I mean, if that doesn't sound like some Michael Jordan, right? I mean, that that is, I mean, that's why he became who he was, the competitive spirit. Oh, that's great. Um, So we got to get into Stanley Lovell. You know, we're we're half an hour Mm -hmm. into this. We haven't even talked about Stanley Lovell, (laughs) who is a main character in this Mm-hmm. Uh, who he's great because he it's kind of like he's like a, a you know that how it started how it's going kind of meme you know because mm-hmm. how he yeah. starts out is really he wants to do good by humanity he wants to be a good person and wants to do right uh and by the end he just wants the war to be over by any means necessary yes. i mean he goes through quite yes, by a, any means necessary <laughs> quite a transition but tell me a little bit about stanley lovell and how he kind of got into the oss yeah, he is one of the main characters of this book. And like you said, his kind of arc of changing, his philosophical change about mm-hmm. war is kind of one of the main arcs of this book. Right. But Stanley Lovell is a, an industrial chemist from New England, from around Boston. And when the war started, he quit his job at this shoe and leather factory and he went to Washington, D.C. because he wants to help his country in this war. He eventually gets hired as an aide for 
this guy, Vannevar Bush, and uh, Bush recommends him to Donovan in the OSS. So that, that's kind of how Stanley Lovell gets associated with the OSS. Donovan, you know, then recruits Lovell. There's this interesting story in the book, an exciting one, I think, mm -hmm. where Lovell shows up to the OSS headquarters. <laughs> he doesn't really know what's going on. He's never been here before. And he, you know, he just knows he's supposed to meet someone. Then Donovan, you know, eventually comes in and says, I need a Professor Moriarty for the OSS, and I think you're it. Right. And so that's how that's how Level gets not only his nickname, but that's how he joins the OSS. Yeah, it's pretty, I mean, it's, it's just full of great stories, you know, as these people meet. It almost, it, it, it feels very cinematic. I don't know if you meant to write it like that, but these, the, the amount of coincidences, the serendipity involved with a lot of American history is just really incredible. Just the, 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 the strange coincidences and, and star-crossed people, right? I mean, it's just really interesting and the characters that kind of come in and out of these stories. Uh, so this is, you know, th there wasn't a lot of direction here. I mean, I remember you know, reading that, you know, Lovell was kind of completely on his own creating mm -hmm. stuff and they kind of didn't really know what they were doing. In 1941, they commandeered the Congressional Country Club which is yes, so this is a great story because I mean they're like training with live ammunition and it's bananas. Yeah, I mean this is a legitimate country club. There are a number of presidents who had been members right. of this country club earlier. You know, a really high society country club, and you know, in this golf course on it. And the OSS commandeers it during World War II. It becomes codenamed Area F, and this is where they practiced. They practiced a lot of a uh, lot of things yeah. for the OSS. They would, you know, where the driving range was. Well, that becomes a rifle range, so they could practice their shots. And you know, they have bunkers that they will put uh, explosives in and detonate things. The mm -hmm. the ponds for the golf courses now it becomes explosive ponds where you can detonate underwater explosives and kind of see how they react to water. And there's also this kind of secret laboratory under the main clubhouse on the, on the basement floor of the clubhouse. Right. And this becomes what's known as the Maryland Research Laboratory. And this is kind of the laboratory that's in, in charge of kind of doing the R&D, the invention for all of these crazy gadgets and weapons that Stanley Lovell is in charge of. Well, and one of those, you know, this is right around the time. I think the first thing they invented was the time pencil, which is a way to uh, set an explosive by a timer. And this, you know, they use acid and a restraining wire uh, inside mm -hmm. a pencil. And this is kind of, they use this throughout. This becomes their first and kind of their most versatile uh, mm -hmm. gadget. Uh, but also right around this time, you know, Harvard scientist uh, Louis, I'm going to get this wrong, uh, Louis uh, Pfizer? Is that a Pfizer? Pfizer? Mm -hmm. yeah, Pfizer? Yeah, he was not the Pfizer, like, uh, you know, the, the Viagra Pfizer. This is a different Pfizer. No, yeah. a very different man, but also into chemicals. And he was yes. a professional arsonist. Remember, Harvard scientist, I said. Professional arsonist who created napalm. And for those of you who don't really yes. know what napalm is, this is basically a gel, a, a, an extraordinary flammable gel that can stick mm -hmm. to everything, and it's quite incendiary. Yeah, so the, yeah, that's this is Louis uh, Pfizer. And he, you know, one person that Lovell hires pretty soon is a guy named Harris Chadwell. Yeah. Pfizer happened to be the roommate of Harris Chadwell back in college. And so they knew each other, which is how Lovell knows Pfizer, and he recruits him to work with the R&D branch of the OSS on a lot of these inventions. But yeah, Pfizer invented napalm. And, you know, again, talking about kind of these crazy stories or coincidences, he doesn't have a pl place to really test 
his napalm and he's working at Harvard. So what does he do? He walks onto the soccer fields and he just starts detonating bombs on the soccer fields at Harvard. And he gets in trouble for this, not necessarily because he's detonating these napalm bombs on the Harvard right. you know, school, right. but because the field that he was using, there was an admiral who wanted it for drill instruction for his recruits. And he's saying, you're hogging this field. You need to leave. So that's why he gets in trouble. But, I mean, it's the stuff is crazy. I mean, just these stories about how people, I mean, it's such a different time because people avoided genuine any kind of reprimand at all. I mean, all this this crazy stuff was encouraged. And it's again, it's the time. It's the context. You know, I mean, I, psychopaths like serial killers. I think you and I can both agree this is not a controversial statement, but they don't really fit into society. Well, right. We mm. could agree on that. However, mm. they fit in really well in the army or in the military, because they have the skill set that you need to win a war, right? And so these, you know, a professional arsonist who's a chemist is probably a dangerous individual. However, <laughs> you stick him into the R&D branch of, you know, the, the OSS, and all of a sudden he becomes a, a national asset. It's strange well, times. Context is everything. Yeah, this this kind of gets to a point that I, I talk about elsewhere in the book about, you know, I talk about this forgery operation that the R&D <laughs> branch has. It's forging passports and ration tickets and train tickets and all kinds of stuff. But some of the people that the this forgery operation, this documents division of the R&D branch, some of the people that it hires are convicts. Yeah. They're ex-cons or they're convicts literally, literally sprung from prison and they had been caught um, forging government bonds or money or something like that. And so, I mean, these are the exact people that Stanley Lovell needs to start forging other documents, you know, like German passports. And so he hires these convicts to help him with the R&D branch. So, yeah, in one context, they're in prison. In another, they're helping win the war. Or, you know, Stanley Lovell thinks they can help win this war. Hey, it's crazy because I want to talk about the document stuff later, but I'm glad you brought it up now because I think it was Jim the Pen Man. Uh, who was mm -hmm. who was the guy there? And yeah, the, he was so good at forging. He could do handwriting signatures. And he was so great. And I love. Have you taught him how to use invisible ink? Which for those listening at home, you have all the ingredients you need: uh, urine and lemon juice. I think is it's all you need. <laughs> yeah. It's invisible ink. Yeah, those, those are some common, some easy common ones. You can, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can do it at home. Uh, you I, do it I, I, was, I was actually intrigued by reading about some of this stuff. So I got some lemon juice and I tried to do it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and you get a you can get a hair dryer and kind of heat it up and it'll turn a little bit browner. Yeah. and it actually did work. It, you know, it, it was still a little bit noticeable even before you heated it up. Yeah. So it wasn't exactly transparent, yeah. but it, it worked pretty good. It's enough. all right. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's all right. Uh, that's what I might try this myself. Uh, so what I love about this story, again, the, the the balls on some of these guys is just legendary, John. So he's <laughs> he works for the document division, Jim, the pen man, and he's a convict. They've gotten him out of prison when he leaves. He writes a thank you note to Lovell in his own handwriting, in Lovell's own handwriting. Like if yes, that isn't, yeah. I mean, if that isn't a flex, I don't know what is. Yeah, yeah. Lovell says in his memoir, you know, Jim the Penman, he had been a, a great kind of asset to us during World War II. And after the war, I never really understood what happened to him. All I got was this letter on my desk and it said, thanks to an understanding boss. And it was written in my own handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> Bananas. You know, and what's crazy is what's the, there's such a weird juxtaposition in this book between some of these people who are pulling off these unbelievably cool cinematic feats right? That are inspirational in their own weird way for just a level of, of, uh, of proficiency. And then you have the other side, which is some of the most ridiculous, 
bat crazy ideas that I've ever heard that I cannot believe yeah. were taken seriously. Mm-hmm. The primes, you know, the Donovan even did the, you know, he did a crowdsourcing to get some inventions. Now, why you would ask the general public for ideas I, I, is beyond me. But a couple of the ideas, you had death rays, flying cars, and a kitty bomb. Once again, I don't know where people's heads are. You had kitty bombs and you had bat bombs, all of which were genuinely tested. The kitty bomb was approved by a sitting senator. Let me say that again. The kitty bomb was approved by a sitting senator, so Lovell had to test this uh, t- test this idea. Yeah, this with Lovell, he as soon as he heard this idea, this kitty bomb, this cat bomb. He, well, the idea behind it, just to give some context, yeah, please, is that please give str- some context. <laughs> please. <laughs> yeah, the idea that somebody wrote in was basically strap a cat to a bomb. And we all know that cats hate water, so they're going to naturally not land on water. So if you drop the cat attached to this bomb, it'll steer itself to land on a ship, which is, you know, not water. And so therefore, it'll blow up the ship, which physically, I don't understand how you could think that would work. But anyways, apparently, there was a senator who was kind of taken with this idea. Yeah, we need to start researching oh, yeah, this. Yeah, that's great idea. Stanley Lovell, yeah, Stanley Lovell thought this was a ridiculous idea. But because a senator is kind of pushing for it, he felt somewhat obligated or forced basically to test it. So they actually had to kind of strap something to a cat and see if it could steer the bomb. It couldn't. <laughs> you don't say. Uh, that, that is, I mean, what's, what's, what else is kind of cool is this shows the power, and this is something I learned way too late in life, John, is that the power of relationships can kind of carry you like a hang glider through life, and it can also push some of these dumb ideas to the forefront. So, for example, mm. there's an inventor whose last name is Adam, so you say looks like Santa. So I imagine his first name yes. was Chris. Uh, he had an idea <laughs> for a mail delivery system during the war, which is kind of, you know, get to get mail without landing. Kind of an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. Somehow he yeah. got the ear of uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, who is the sitting mm-hmm. first lady, right? Mm-hmm. So she considered him a friend. So uh, after Pearl Harbor, Adams submitted this idea for strapping, you know, bombs to bats, which is the bat bomb idea you're talking about. Mm -hmm. This is the only reason anyone considered this was because Eleanor Roosevelt thought he was smart and that this was a good idea. So she gave it to uh, FDR, her husband, who, you know, given marriage at that time, FDR had to take it seriously. So then he gives it to Donovan, who then has to carry this silly thing out. And there's this great story in it where he's telling the story. Adams is telling the story to a general and the general is really upset, saying, like, I can't believe, you know, who's going to make, you know, Adams? Who's going to split Adams and make a bomb? This is ridiculous. These dumb scientists, you know, thinking, mm-hmm. confusing him with the people working on the Manhattan Project. But somehow he Adams was like, no, 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 no. Making a bomb out of Adams. That's that is lunacy. However, I got an idea you're yeah. really going to love. How about a bomb exactly. strapped to a vampire bat? I mean, you can't make this stuff up, John. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that guy was saying, yeah, well, we're going to make these bombs out of atoms or, or out of atoms yeah. and little atoms. This, you know, the guy who came up with this bat bomb idea is basically saying, I don't know why anyone would have such a crazy idea with that <laughs> yeah. when we have a sure thing like this bat bomb right, on our hands. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 bananas. I mean, and some of these just some of these ideas are super crazy. I'm not going to go into the to the bat bomb idea. You go into it. I've got four pages of notes on it. If that tells anyone listening <laughs> how how in depth this this trial period was, uh, but it, it is a great story and kind of it highlights just how they really were 
trying anything and everything, even flying in the face of of common sense, you know, really, I think. Well, yeah, and the ironic thing about the bat bomb is that it, it sounds so wacky, and it's why would you ever test this thing? But in testing, a few bats kind of escaped, and they actually did manage to burn down accidentally, like a barracks and some stuff. So the ironic thing is that it actually kind of worked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, but if you, yeah, I mean, but you could strap them to seagulls. You could strap, I mean, anything flying in yeah. the air, you have them, I mean, yeah, but it's still, I mean, and no one even thinks about you're killing a bunch of bats. I mean, you, you're these bats yeah, are on suicide bad, missions, yeah. and we didn't care about mm -hmm. that at all. Uh, which you know, I know I'm coming from a, a different time, but uh, you know, but there, this wasn't there was no shortage of, of wacky ideas. You know, I think you talk about there were actually guns put into umbrellas, so people. Were, this was actually like the Penguin for those familiar with the uh, '60s mm -hmm. TV show. Uh, there was this stuff called the uh, Aunt Jemima mix. Now, I didn't know mm -hmm. if it was called Aunt Jemima because that was the brand of the pancake mix or if that, like, that was a chicken or egg thing for me because this was basically a 20% flour, 80% explosive. And the idea was, is that in its regular form, it was inert and would last a long time on shelves. But if you mix it with water and added a detonator, though that, um, that detonator we talked about earlier, uh, that you could have an explosion the size of TNT. So I'm curious, how did it work? And did the name come before the actual brand name Pancake Mix? I, I think the brand name came first. I think they were just kind of piggybacking off of that. Okay. okay. Um, I, I think that's the case. Um, yeah, the, the real reason for this Aunt Jemima, like you said, is this pancake mix that it has explosive mixed into it that you can apply a detonator and kind of explode it. The reason is that if you want to sneak explosives into like enemy territory, if you want to give the French resistance some explosives they can use to detonate bridges or blow up a train or something, well, you can't just bring a bunch of explosives. You know, the guards are going to see that and uh, confiscate them and arrest you or kill you. Right. So how do you sneak it in somewhere? Well, you disguise it as something that no one would ever bat an eye about, like flour or pancake mix. Okay, you're just carrying some food. Right. Uh, so that's that's the that's the kind of genesis of this. Is that how how do we sneak explosives into areas? Well, and also the um, the amount of kind of irresponsibility with some of these things. I, I mean, even the bat bomb idea. They were sending this. I think some of the bats were roosting in a rancher's like barn. I mean, this is just a guy mm -hmm. yeah. who's just doing his job, right, in the in the Mojave Desert. So there, there's really no – people are not taking the precautions that are necessary. Uh, and this pancake mix is a perfect example uh, because you tell a story where, you know, I think it was uh, – oh, oh, my goodness. Who was it? Was it Donovan who had a bunch of this stuff left over and dumps it on the toilet? I'm sure you know the story. Uh, better uh, than level, that. level. Okay. Yeah, that was level. Okay. Mm -hmm. So tell the story just really quickly about how they get rid of it uh, and, yeah, almost blew up the president in the process. Yeah, well, the Lovell had a bunch of Aunt Jemima kind of sitting in his office, and he was ready to get rid of it. They had done some experiments on it, so he didn't want it just sitting there. And so he decides to call up someone who had been on kind of the development process and ask, how do I get rid of this stuff? And the guy responds, oh, you can just flush it down the toilet. I mean, it's inert. You know, it's there's no detonator. It's not, Nothing's going to happen to it. And so he and his assistant, Lovell and his assistant, flush a bunch of this stuff down the toilet. And finally, they finish. They go back to Lovell's office. 
and there's a call on the telephone. Okay, so Level picks up the telephone and says, hello. And it's the boss of the other guy he had just talked to. And the boss is saying, don't flush that Aunt Jemima <laughs> down the toilet. It's going to have a reaction in the sewer, and it's going to blow this place sky high. Yeah. And so Level is, says, okay. He sets the phone down, and he doesn't want to you know, make it seem as if he already flushed it down the toilet. Right. And then he starts panicking. So <laughs> he's worried that the sewer system you know, in Washington, D.C. is going to go by the White House, and maybe it's going to blow up the whole White House. And, and you know, so... He ends up going to dinner, and every time there's a car that backfires <laughs> or a waiter that drops dishes, he starts having a panic attack, yeah. so he has to go and walk around all night. Eventually, in the morning, he kind of walks by the White House and sees that it's still standing, and he can kind of breathe a sigh of relief by then. Yeah, he was super, I mean, yeah, super jumpy for the whole night. This reminded me of the scene in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, where Uncle Eddie is just emptying out his raw sewage into the, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, into the drain, and they're saying, like, oh, well, if that you know, if that swamp gas gets out, it's going to blow up the whole neighborhood, which, you know, spoiler alert, it really does <laughs> later on. But this reminded yeah. me of that whole... <laughs> yeah, I, I never made that connection, but that's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's just, it's you don't think it's serious and all of a sudden you're like oh yeah it could blow up the president uh but there were you know this isn't the only strange plan you know there were uh, this is what I, I think again this is what kind of struck me just really quickly there were a couple of weird ideas so they wanted to uh they had a psychoanalyst come in to uh take a look at hitler's mental state and they determined mm -hmm. they determined that he had a huge feminine part of his personality so they were going to hire a local gardener to inject his food with female hormones the goal was to shatter his fragile masculinity and that that was going to somehow make them win the war. I think if you were to inject it with a poison, that might have worked faster <laughs> than. But anyway, the gardener ended up taking the money and running anyway. But these are the types of ideas where you're like, what? This was our intelligence agency. I mean, it's that's an, it's almost an oxymoron or a misnomer. Yep. I, I talked with Stanley Lovell's grandson. Oh, cool. Um, you know, I mean, all, all the people in the book are, are long dead. Yep. You know, this is World War Two. But some some of their families are still alive. So I talked with uh, Stanley Lovell's grandson, and he did say about this female sex hormone injecting it that Stanley Lovell was particularly kind of proud of this one. And he wished it would have like he would have been able to pull it off. Really? <laughs> yeah, he liked that's that one. <laughs> I mean, that's cr I don't even know how you think that that's a good idea, much less that was his crown jewel. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, he, he liked well, they, they, he liked several. One of the ones that he liked the most, it's called the mole. The mole is this explosive device that you could attach to a train. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that when the train goes into a tunnel, well, the explosive device can kind of detect light from dark. And so when it enters a tunnel, it'll detect that it's shifted to dark and it'll explode. Right. The idea being that we can not only destroy this train, but we can plug up this tunnel and prevent the Germans from using the tunnel. Yeah. So level that that was probably his favorite one. But he did say he liked that sex hormone. Yeah, but that's a good one. The mole's a good. That's a good idea. Yeah, yeah, it's a good <laughs> that's idea. a good idea. The other one's not. That's a horrible idea. That's a horrible idea, Stanley. Uh, but you know, this is true. I think I've met a lot of brilliant people who, yeah, sometimes they just get, you know, this idea in their head that they think in their mind it works perfectly and everyone else is like, well, in practice, that's kind of goofy. Uh, but there was no shortage mm -hmm. of those. Uh, but, you know, you mentioned the, the documents division. They had all sorts of very specialized divisions. You know, and the do in, in the document, they were forging not only signatures, but they, I think they were doing the, the documents, they're counterfeiting money, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, there was, they kind of, when you have an organization like this, that's kind of, running afoul of the law, so to speak, or let's say trying to circumvent the law, 
Mm-hmm. You have trouble getting it by the official censors. And I think there was a U.S. passport chief, uh, Ruth Shipley. I don't mean to name drop her here, uh, but she was a stickler for the passports. And basically, Donovan said, look, you can work with us and help us make real ones for our agents to keep them alive. Or we'll just get mm-hmm. to forge them anyway. It's your choice. You yeah. can be involved or you know, don't be involved. Yeah, she was notorious as kind of this passport chief. Um, she had control on issuing... The, a true actually, bureaucrat, by the way. Actually, I mean, a true bureaucrat, yes, right? <laughs> yes. This actually p- played somewhat of a big role during the world uh, during the Red Scare after World War II. She was still the passport chief for decades. And so she um, really prevented scientists especially from getting passports and traveling to go to conferences because she thought that all scientists are these lefty communists and they're aiding the enemy. And so she denied them passports a lot of times. That's crazy. I mean, there was even... The these guys were so good. There's even one story where uh, I'm going to get some of the details wrong here, but basically uh, one of their agents was in Germany or a foreign country and was trying to get back in. And his passport was so good that he ended up getting yeah. put in prison. I mean, because they didn't they didn't believe he was actually American because they're like, well, your your documentation, clearly you're German or, you know, uh, I mean, that's how good these things were. Their own agents were kind of, <laughs> you know, the brunt of the uh, excellent manufacturing, you know. Yeah, they were really good. And the you know the thing that really kind of impresses me when doing the research about all these documents and the clothing is just the attention to detail they right. have to be on every single piece of this. You know, it, it's not just that you have to create a document. You have to use the specific kind of filler paper mm-hmm. that are in these documents, the specific kind of ink. You have, you know, if you want to put a stamp on something, well, a lot of different municipalities have their own stamps. So you have to have an artist who creates the individual stamps for the different municipality mm-hmm. that you are supposed to have been mm-hmm. in. The detail is really incredible. If you want to if you want to create German buttons, mm-hmm. they might thread their buttons in a different way <laughs> than the British or the French or the Americans thread their buttons. Yeah. You have to know how they thread buttons. Like who would think of that little detail? Well, there's even one where you talk about how I think it's German passports, they never showed the right ear. So you have to mm-hmm. know yeah. that because if you've got, you know, your agents going over to the German passport and you can see both of his ears, he's going to get shot on sight. Yeah. And, and you know, in the and the, the book is coming out March 7th and it's going to be included in it is a kind of photo section. One of the photos I show is one of these forged passports where it shows an agent sitting for a picture with his ear covered like he can't see it. Oh, that's great. It. And, it, you know, it kind of comes up in the picture. So that's I got to see these pictures. I got an early edition of the book. I didn't see any of this stuff. You got to send these to me. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if the pictures had uh, been quite finalized oh. by then, but we'll have to get yeah, to Yeah, <laughs> please. That's exciting. Uh, so as you mentioned, you know, there were other divisions and this you know, the camouflage division was one that was really interesting as well, where they kind of, you know, you mentioned the stitching. That was key to knowing the camouflage. This is the basic. Basically, mm-hmm. the makeup, hair, and wardrobe department of the OSS, right? I mean, mm-hmm. these are you're making yep. people look. Everyone has a cover story. Everyone is trying to be somebody else, and this really is the Hollywood division in my mind because everyone's an actor, and if you if you're not playing your character, you're dead. I mean, talk about the stakes. You know, mm-hmm. not a box. Not if you yeah, have, if you're a terrible not. actor in real life, you, your movie just flops, and you know you make another one. Here, if you're if you're a bad actor, you're dead. Uh, and you know they had you know the makeup, they had cavity, you know teeth with hidden um, pockets that you could like hide stuff in. They had hidden pockets in the garments. Uh, they used mm-hmm. radiation to make their hair fall out. I mean, this was <laughs> serious business. Yeah, there are a lot of really interesting 
tips and tricks to changing an appearance. <laughs> right. And, it, you know, to me, it seemed like the, the simpler ones were actually almost more profound. Mm -hmm. Like if you want to make yourself look older, you don't have to go through all this stuff of altering how you behave so much. What you do within the OSS is you take a charcoal and you put it in your wrinkles and mm -hmm. it makes your wrinkles deeper and it makes you appear older. Right. If you want to, you know, you can put some whitener on your temples and it gives you a little bit of gray hair and it makes you look older. Right. You can alter your gait by wearing maybe one shoe that's a little bit higher than the other so it makes you walk differently so it automatically kind of changes how you walk nobody can you know identify you based on that there are these small little tricks are really interesting yeah i mean it is it's wild i mean again the tension to detail i mean this truly it's like stanley kubrick was running the camouflage division right i mean they really had to get everything down but you have i mean lives are on the line you really this isn't a joke i mean this again the context these are you've got nazis right arguably some of the worst people <laughs> ever to cross the face of the earth they're coming after you and you got to fool them now they're easily fooled by the way super easily fooled but if you don't uh the, the torture techniques you describe in this book some of them are vicious and terrible and destroyed people's psyches if they didn't even make it out alive mm -hmm. yeah and well one of the best ways to uh, trick someone or to to fool someone into thinking you're legitimate is to actually be legitimate so instead of creating all these clothes when immigrants are coming over from Germany or Europe or somewhere, you get their clothes and you wear them. These are actually authentic <laughs> French or German clothing. Right. You know, so you, you don't actually have to necessarily in every circumstance create a passport from scratch or create a clothing. Yeah. You just need to get some authentic ones. So that, that in a lot of cases, that's what the camouflage division did. It would scour shops in New York for immigrant great clothing. And so then it would have authentic clothing it could supply these agents with. I, yeah, I mean, it's just wild. I mean, it's just the... It's just um, it's a miracle this was allowed to go through. But it's also crazy that this was really an organization that was the receptacle for all of the accumulated spycraft knowledge in the U.S. at the time. And also, they you know, they even worked with some of the other spy agencies. They worked with, you know, the British as well. They were trading secrets mm -hmm. back and forth. You know, so amongst the allies, they were really kind of collecting all of these cool, dirty tricks uh, to become the Dirty Tricks Department, which is why it's an excellent title to your book. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah there, there is a, a lot of uh, kind of trading of skills back and forth between the British equivalent of the OSS, who's called the SOE, the Special Operations Executive. And they came up with a lot of stuff independently, and they would share their ideas with the OSS and the R&D branch within the OSS. So some things that, like, the SOE would come up with were an itching powder that was put into condoms, you know, and these were given to German soldiers, and it made them, uh, you know, I mean, you can imagine what <laughs> it did. Beat me to it. I was going to say, this is great. What I was going to mention some of the crazy inventions, and they took it from a plant, uh, the Mucuna plant, which was basically just mm -hmm. had needle. They were just like needles, basically these microscopic needles, and they put them into German condoms which is, uh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's not nice. Yeah, well, one of the ingenious things that the SOE did was create what they called these rat bombs. Rat bombs where you would get a rat, basically, a dead rat, like roadkill, mm -hmm. and, you know, taxidermy mm -hmm. it, and then stuff it full of some kind of explosive. And the idea is that you would throw it into um, kind of a coal depot, and when the Germans are shoveling the coal into their um, locomotives, it would it would blow up this explosive. Um, so <laughs> that's one of the ideas that the SOE came up with. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. There's also, uh, just to finish up with crazy inventions, uh, is there was, um, uh, they, they, uh, they had an invention called the dog drag. Is that what it's called? Where you would hide your body odor mm -hmm. yes. from search dogs. And there was this whole, like, 
micro niche uh, de- department that would kind of try to do these smells. And some guy created uh, one called Who Me, which started out as a mm-hmm. fart smell, which is that's a brilliant name uh, for a fart smell, by the way. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But it later became, you know, they later used skunk. And the idea was, and this is, again, one of those what are you thinking moments was that they were going to mm-hmm. spray it on Japanese soldiers so that the Japanese soldiers would smell so bad that they would be demoralized and that would give them an advantage in the war. I mean, you would. Ha- I don't even. I don't know, man. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say about that. I don't know if I do either. But yeah, this is who me. Uh, this who uh, me? it's kind of, almost kind of an infinite, infamous invention. But yeah, like you said, the idea is that you would sneak this to little, you know, what Stanley Lovell says, little Chinese boys where um, Japan Japanese officers are occupying what their particular city. And these boys would then spray it on the backside of these officers who would then de- be demoralized and want to quit and be embarrassed. Uh, you know, I don't know how that actually went in practice, but that's at least the intent. Yeah, that has to be really strong in the culture uh, because I think they still had running water. So just take a shower. I, I don't know. I, I don't understand the ins and outs. I don't want to. I don't want to oversimplify the plan. I mean, this was an American <laughs> intelligence plan, but uh, they probably know more than I do. Uh, so you know, we got these crazy inventions out of the way. Uh, there's lots of wacky stuff uh, just filling your book. But how can people find you if they want to? You know, this book comes out in March. Uh, it's coming out soon, but I'm sure people can get in touch with you. They can find your book. You, I'm sure you do social media, websites. How can they do it? Uh, the best way to keep up with me and anything that I'm doing is probably Twitter. It's at John Lyle, J-O-H-N-L-I-S-L-E. I post not just kind of updates on my books and what I'm doing, but also I post interesting stuff from the archives. So if I come across an interesting document that maybe nobody has seen in 60 mm-hmm. years, I post it on Twitter. So if you're interested in that, I would suggest you follow me on Twitter. So not only do you get my updates, but also some cool historical stuff that I like to put on there from time to time. I, I love that. I mean, that is that's great stuff. I mean, it's a living document, right? Like this. Everything is classified. Some of these things are hidden. Uh, I remember, you know, reading that there was for the MK Ultra uh, that that literally it was just a box of declassified documents in the back of a warehouse somebody found one day. So like this stuff is still being unearthed, uh, you know, from from so long ago. So I, I'm very excited to see that. Uh, and of course, if you want to find this show, uh, it's easy to do. We're fascinatingnouns.com is the website. Fascinating noun on Twitter fascinating nouns on Facebook. Uh, that's where you can do it. You can find, I'm going to have links to everything that we're talking about here. And I've got good news for people listening. Uh, John and I are going to do a quick 10 minute bonus episode, which you can find on the podcast feed. Uh, we haven't even talked about the end of the OSS. Uh, and it's, it, this is a great transition into the MK ultra stuff. Uh, but, but until then, you know, John, this is a fantastic book. People have got to check it out again. It comes out March 7th. You said March 7th. Yep. March 7th. That's the day to get it. Uh, so, you know, until then, This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for doing this research and for taking time out for me today. Thanks for having me. It was great. And you really did your research on this, too. Your questions were awesome. That was a great conversation. Oh, thank thank you. you. I don't want to say that I could write a book on the OSS, but I definitely can prove that I've read a book on the OSS, which is (laughs) I'll take I'll take that. Uh, So thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel G. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And I'm guessing after listening to this, you never want to miss another episode. 
you're going to want to subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, and we even have links right there on our show website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find all the links right there. And let's say you don't have a favorite podcasting platform. That's no problem. You can listen to every episode right there on the website, which is once again, fascinatingnouns.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's a great way to learn more about the episodes that you're listening to, find out about upcoming episodes, and to just keep in touch with the community. It's right there on the website. Speaking of community, there's no better way to stay in touch than on social media. And you can find links to our show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the front page of fascinatingnouns.com. And speaking of YouTube, there's a video version of this episode there right now, uh, as well as other past episodes and all future episodes. It's going to be right there, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. It's a great way to see all the guests and, uh, you know, check it out live and in person. Feel like you're there in studio. Great way to do it, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And finally, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com and check out all of my projects and see what's going on. Once again, thank you for listening. End of transmission.